Well, we're here to remember Jesus and to, to think about him there as he was 2,000 years ago, covered in blood and spittle on a hill just outside Jerusalem on a day in April, on a Friday afternoon. And we think of him there and we think of ourselves here. And the, the gap between him and us can seem so very, very great. And yet, Paul says in Philippians 2 that the mind that was in Christ then should be in us now. And here in our chapter in Ephesians 5, you've got the same idea, verse 2 of chapter 5, Walk in love, as Christ also hath loved us, and has given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God. Now, whenever we, we read of the love of Christ, very often it is in the context of his death. His death for us was his ultimate love, uh, love to the end for us. And so then, as Christ gave himself for us as an offering on the cross, so we also are to walk in love. And he shows what that love means throughout the next two chapters here, in ecclesial life, in, in family life, in, in the workplace, in our relations with people in the world, uh, etc. Now when he says that he, that is Christ, has given himself for us, this is... Uh, uh, makes an interesting study to go through that that phrase given himself for us because it's used about how Jesus gave up his last breath how he breathed his last and Jesus said that no one takes his life from him but he gives it he will give it of himself and I think that Paul has that in mind here now, most people, particularly at 33 years old, die against their will. Remember that Dallin Thomas poem about dying men, that they go not gentle into that good night, but rage, rage against the dying of the light. So none of us, particularly at 33 years old, walk to our death, walk out into that good night uh, gentle, but rage against the dying of the light. And so Jesus was different in the way that he died because no one took his life from him, but he gave it of himself. And so how practically, how physically that worked out, as I understand it, was that as he hung there and he knew that he was at the end, he had the last breath in his lungs and he breathed it out in the form of those words, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And when he said spirit, that was the end. He had no more, uh, no more breath in him. That was it. He died. And so he gave his life as an act of the will, rather than it being taken from him. And I think that's why Pilate marveled that Jesus had died so quickly when crucifixion victims usually uh, suffered for far longer than Jesus did. So then, you see, in the way that he died a very, uh, well, words fail me really, but uh, a, a supreme example of self-possession and self-control. And that he consciously gave out his life rather than it being taken from him. And the scary thing is that here we are told that we are to walk or to live our daily lives in love as Christ gave himself for us as an offering on the cross. That's a very, very high standard. And 
John has the same idea in his letters when he says that uh, as he laid down his life for us, and it's the same word, the same idea, the laying down of life, that the giving of life consciously as an act of the will, as he laid down his life for us, so we also should lay down our lives for the brethren. And you've got the same uh, word later on here in Ephesians 5 and 25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Gave himself up for it. Gave out that last breath. And again you see how the love of Christ, as Christ loved the church, uh, the love of Christ is again connected with, with his death. Now, that, let's take the context of married, married life, that elevates married life to a very, very high standard. And the usual reason why marriages go dead or they even break up is because people say, well, it all sort of died, you know, and it all became very humdrum and very normal, and, uh, well, you know, it just was how it was. But there is, in here, in that verse 25 there, one way that totally should stop that happening if you're both believers that the husband is to love his woman as Christ gave himself for the church and although he may of course fail to, to rise up to that level of course the woman should perceive that he's trying to do that and that of course inspires her response to him and that, uh, that respect and that loyalty which I guess means a lot to uh, two men. And so, th this whole idea that Jesus there, as he was, particularly in that last giving up of his breath, that that is to be us. Let this mind that was in Christ in, on the cross be in you, you know, Philippians 2, that this elevates all, all family life, all relationship life, to a totally different sort of level. And it's not only marriages that can get stale and uh, peter out um, and sort of die, not, not with a bang, but, uh, but with a whimper kind of thing. Uh, that, that is true for relationships right across the board. It's why ecclesias start a break up or, or get stuck in a rut. It's why all sorts of relationships end up going sour or becoming relatively meaningless. And so... Having set that great standard there in verse 2 of chapter 5, he then goes on to talk about fornication and uncleanness and that sort of thing. He says, that should not be once named among you, verse 3. And he's quoting from the Old Testament commands about how the names of the idols were not even to be taken onto the lips of Israel. Our sphere of thinking will simply be totally different. We set with the, this challenge of him there on the cross in his last breath being me today in my life here at this time in history and this geographical place where I live in this set of relationships and circumstance that I find myself in that completely elevates our whole sphere of thinking so that all the other the sort of the sinful stuff as it were is not even once named amongst us and he says, verse 5, Because, for this you know, that none of these unclean persons have any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God, because they are, he says, verse 5, idolaters. And that explains why, in verse 3, when he says, Let these things not be even named among you, he's alluding, or quoting, uh, from the Old Covenant's uh, prescription of how 
the names of idols should not be named on the lips of Israel. So then, those things and those persons who will not be, and which will not be in the kingdom of Christ and of God, should not be in our sphere of interest right now. And that again is quite a challenge because these days with internet etc one can sort of vicariously be involved in all those things and yet say well I I don't do those things but I look at them with great interest. It's true really um, in what you look at even on what is called the news Um, because there's an awful lot of bad stuff that's there on the news and it seems to me that they, they filter what goes into the news in accordance with what they think people will be interested in hearing. He says in verse 8, You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk, therefore, as children of light. So there's been a change of status when we were baptized. We came out of darkness into light. And therefore we are to live out that status in practice. Because you are light in the Lord, walk as children of light. In the Lord, because of baptism into Christ... Therefore, we are in the the sphere of God's kingdom and and the light rather than the darkness. And therefore, we should live accordingly. Now, talking about light, he goes on in verse 13, All things that are reproved are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. Now, this idea of being made manifest, this is uh, picked up uh, again by Paul when he writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4 and he says that at the day of judgment uh, all the hidden things of darkness will be made light in that day and yet he's saying here verse 13 of our chapter of Ephesians 5 that that making manifest is going on right now by the light. If we are walking in the light, then our deeds are made manifest. They are revealed. And this idea occurs also in in Luke 2, when Jesus is a little baby, and uh, Simeon cuddles him in his arms. Uh, Luke uh, 2, and he he tells Mary, in verse uh, 34, Simeon tells Mary, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel. Verse 35, yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, talking about uh, the crucifixion, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed or may be manifested. So, in the death of Jesus, there was something which would function as the revealer of many hearts, as the manifester of many hearts. And I think it is that when you look at him there, you cannot help but be convicted within your own conscience of your sin. Because he there, particularly in his crucifixion, was the ultimate light of the world. He was the most intense manifestation of God that there has ever been. God was in Christ, not only in his life, but I think particularly in his death. Now, the idea of the cross being light, like uh, light is pretty clear in John 3, where Jesus talks about how the snake was lifted up in the wilderness, and he says, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And he's uh, talking about his, his crucifixion. Uh, so he's likening himself to the snake that was lifted up on the pole in the wilderness. The pole is like, um, is like the cross, the stake of wood. And Jesus goes on 
to say, verse 19 of John 3, This is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that does evil hates the light, neither comes to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that does truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. Now, what's the connection between Jesus talking about the light that has come into the world that reveals men's sin to them, and him having said that he was like the snake lifted up on the pole? Well, you could say, so therefore the snake lifted up on the pole was like the light of the world. That is true, but we're reading the Bible, of course, through the, the lenses of our 21st century life and experience, and I think we tend to inevitably forget that they, they didn't have electric light, that the light of the world was not thought of as a light bulb that is flicked into, into light by pressing a switch. This Greek word that, that's used here for light really means a torch, and again, not a torch with batteries but a torch as in a piece of wood, uh, a stick, a, a, a tree branch, on top of which there is uh, a burning light. That's how they would have understood a light, or a torch. And so, when Jesus says that I'm, the, uh, I'm like the snake that was lifted up on the pole, that's like me lifted up on the stake or on the cross, and then he says, basically, and I am the light of the world, I am the torch of the world. Yes, that's the connection, that a torch or a light was something that was lifted up on a pole. And so I think he's, he's saying, quite seamlessly, I think that is a, a connection between these two uh, little sections here in John 3. I think that Jesus is saying that everyone that does evil hates the light and will not come to the light of Jesus there on the cross, fearing that his deeds should be reproved, but he that does truth comes to that torch, comes to him lifted up uh, on the cross, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. And so he's saying what Paul says in so many words in 1 Corinthians 11, that when you come before the cross, you come to self-examination. You come to a unique method of manifesting you and your life, your deeds, as John puts it, uh, for who you really are. And in that sense, we, as we come before the light, the torch that is lifted up, we come before judgment. We come to have, as it were, a foretaste of judgment day. That is what the breaking of bread service can be, if we use it rightly. A foretaste of judgment. And that is why in, in Revelation... John sees a lamb as it had been slain sitting on the throne of judgment. Visually, I suggest that what he saw was the silhouette of a slain lamb against a judgment day picture, a judgment day vision, a throne of judgment. It's as if coming before the slain lamb, Jesus crucified, is to come before the day of judgment. And that is why, inevitably, I think if we do it properly, we will examine ourselves as we come before him. And so he goes on, again, in the light of what he's been saying about Jesus crucified and our response to that and how that is to be the motive, uh, a motivator in our family life, in our practical life. 
in our internal thinking, our spiritual mindedness, that we should therefore speak to ourselves in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, make melody in our own hearts to the Lord. He's talking about being spiritually minded. He says in 16, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Buying up the opportunities is the idea of redeeming the time. Because the days are evil. Now, what's the connection between the two halves of, those, uh, of that verse? Because the days are evil, therefore you better buy up your time. You better be good at time management and use your time wisely because the days are evil. Well, I'm not quite sure what the connection is, but I suggest it's like this, that the evilness of the days will somehow tempt us to waste our lives. I'll say that again. The evilness of the days will tempt us to waste our lives and to therefore need to be especially on our guard so that we redeem the time, so that we buy up our opportunities. Now, evil, therefore, the evilness of the days is therefore in the sense that they will, or one aspect of their evil, let's put it that way, uh, is therefore in that they tempt us to fritter away our lives, to waste our time. Now we've all got limited time, we're all on borrowed time, we all have a very limited amount of time here, and we've got to use it urgently. And in fact, there is an allusion there when he says redeeming the time, in the Greek anyway, uh, back to the situation that it was when, in the time of Daniel when the wise men were, all the wise men were going to be killed, and suddenly time was of the essence. And Daniel goes, they go racing to Daniel, look, we're all going to be killed, and he's like, stop, 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 I'll, des I'll try to get the interpretation, I'll pray to God, just give me time, give me time, uh, and... Uh, uh, and the king knows that they're trying to uh, redeem the time, and he says, you're only trying to do that because you know the thing has uh, gone from me, in the sense of the, uh, the command to kill you all has already gone from me. I've given that. Um, so that intensity that there was when the command was out that all the wise men had to be killed, and Daniel's scooting around desperately uh, begging for a bit of time so he can pray to God, get the interpretation, and go into the king and give it to him and save their lives... He's saying that that is how we should be living, with that intensity. And I'm afraid to say that we live in a world which is extremely evil in the sense that it really does sap our time. Social networking in particular. People living online. People wasting their lives. And that is in fact because the days are evil. We're living in unprecedented evil. And there is so much good to be done, not only in our own characters, but in the world of need, particularly spiritual need, in which we live. So then, <clears throat> Jesus died for us, and he was completely uh, united with us, and this, uh, as we keep saying, should affect every aspect of, uh, of human life. And he says in, uh, <clears throat> he goes on in, uh, in chapter 6, he says verse 13 and 14, talking about the days are evil, he says, take unto you the whole armour of God, 6 verse 13, this is 
that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand, stand therefore. He seems to be saying that they were going to face what he called an evil day. It could be a day of persecution that was coming in Ephesus. Don't forget, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 that he fought with beasts at Ephesus. And uh, when we, we talked about that chapter, I gave reason to think that that was literal, that Paul was literally put into the arena uh, to fight with wild beasts at Ephesus, and he won. Whatever, there was a lot of opposition in Ephesus. And 1 Corinthians 16, he says, a door for the gospel has been opened to me here in Ephesus, and I've got to stay in Ephesus for a bit, but there are many adversaries, many Satans were against him. And so it's not surprising that he should tell the Ephesians that there was going to come an evil day. And he says, if you take the armor of God you will be able to, to stand. And I don't think he necessarily means that if you equip yourselves spiritually, therefore you will not die uh, at the hands of this uh, evil persecution. I think he's saying that spiritually you'll stand up through all that. And having done all, and I think he's talking about our whole lives, to stand, that is at the day of judgment, therefore stand now, verse 14. Again you see a connection between how we will be at the day of judgment and how we should be now. <clears throat> if you stand now, then having done all, when all is said and done in human life, and we come to the day of judgment, then we will stand again. And yet will we stand? Because surely the natural uh, reaction of a person to meeting the Lord Jesus Christ is to fall. I mean, people did this when they met angels, let alone when we meet the Lord Jesus that seems to be, to be the natural reaction. And yet, um, we're told that at the day of uh, the Son of Man, in Luke 21, we will be stood, be stood before the Son of Man. We'll be stood up. And you see all that worked out in Daniel 10, in that uh, sort of foretaste he had of death and resurrection, where he lies face down as if he's dead um, in the dust and then the angel comes and stands him on his feet and says arise Daniel be strong be strong you're a man greatly beloved of God and he can't speak he's so scared and then eventually he gets a power of speech and he sort of says who am I oh my lord and he's encouraged that no no it's all okay and he stood up on his feet in that sort of foretaste of resurrection and judgment by an angel and in Romans Paul seems to have that same idea in mind when he says that we should not judge others because to their own master, that is Jesus, they stand or fall. And the Lord is able to make your brother stand. And I, you know, I'm not really a literalist, but I would take that in a, in a literal way. Why do I say that? Well, Romans 14 um, Verse 10, why do you judge your brother, why do you set at naught your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, as it is written, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess, that is, confess their sin to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. So then he says, quite understandably, that every knee shall bow, but we shall all stand. And how shall we stand? Because, as he, he says there, God is able to make him stand. 
It's verse 4 of Romans 14. Talking about the, uh, the weak brother, the other man's servant who you're tempted to judge. To his own master he stands or falls. Yes, he shall be holden up, held up, for God is able to make him stand. So then, that is a very imaginable outcome of the day of judgment for us. That we will fall, every knee shall bow, uh, and yet we shall be held up, purely by grace. Because we, as Paul has said earlier in Ephesians, are acceptable in the Beloved. And therefore we should stand therefore now, he says in verse 14 of chapter 6 here in Ephesians, believing this. And the whole basis of our salvation is because we will be counted as if we are Jesus. Uh, There in chapter 5, verse 30, we are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. Now, Paul was writing in Greek, but his Hebrew thinking comes through. And to say that someone was of your flesh and of your bones is to say that they're a blood relative. And you've got that phrase a couple of times in the Old Testament, uh, for example, about uh, David. uh, And it's clearly used about blood relatives. That is how close we are to Jesus. And so verse 27 of uh, Ephesians 5, that the death of the cross enabled Jesus to present us, the church, to himself, a glorious church, not having spot, wrinkle, or any such thing, holy and without blemish. The key phrase there, I think, is present it to himself, in his eyes. Not, of course, that we are any of those things of ourselves, but that is how he chooses to see us. And of course it's his opinion, it's his view, which is the only view that's worth anything. So then, he's willing to present the church to himself, looking at it in that way. And you see this uh, in a number of passages in 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 the New Testament, that Jesus will look at us in that way, that to him we are like that. And again, Jude 24 him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his, gl- his glory to present you it's a case of presentation it's not that we are those things but because we are in him and he was blameless and without spot and wrinkle or any such thing therefore we are presented in that same way and that's what we've got to believe not only about ourselves but also about others And in all these things, if we can see that connection between him there, as I say, 2,000 years ago, on a day in April, on a Friday afternoon, if we really perceive that he there was our flesh and our bones, that he was really one of us, and truly we are his representatives and he is ours, then this lifts life far above the very mundane level that it so easily falls down into.